everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is found on page 238 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And I do encourage you to turn and to follow along as we read in just a minute. You know, one of uh, the great joys and one of the most interesting challenges of going through our lives is the fact that we engage with people all around us all the time that have a whole wide range of perspectives. Perspectives on anything and everything. For as many people are as in this room this morning, there are equally or even a greater number of perspectives. You might think about a particular issue one way and I would think about it a different way. And he would think about it even differently than that and she would think about it even differently than that. I think of the many perspectives that people have. And most of us are very confident that our perspective is the right one. <laughs> there once lived a happy married couple who had been together for many decades. And over the course of spending years together, the husband became concerned that his wife's hearing was not as good as it used to be. He thought that maybe she needed a hearing aid. But it was a very sensitive issue in their home. And so he called his doctor and asked for his advice. And the doctor said, well, why don't you do a test? And the test will help us to understand just how serious the issue is and if, in fact, she needs a hearing aid. This is what I want you to do. I want you to stand about 40 feet away from her and speak to her like you would in a normal volume in any type of conversation. And if she hears you, great. And if she doesn't, I want you to move in 10 feet and speak to her again. And 10 feet after that and 10 feet after that until we can just see how acute this issue really is. And so the very next day, the husband was looking for his opportunity and he saw his wife in the, dinner, in the kitchen cooking dinner. And he found a spot about 40 feet away from her and he said, Honey, are we going to have anything for dinner tonight? No response. And so he moved in to 30 feet. And he said, Sweetheart, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? And still, there was no response. And so he moved into 20 feet. And he asked a third time, Darling, what do you think we might have to eat this evening? And still, his wife offered no response. And so he moved into 10 feet away from her, and he said, Sweetheart, are we going to have dinner tonight? And still, the wife offered no response. And at this point, the husband pauses with great dismay because this hearing problem is much more significant than he had first realized. And so he walked up gently right behind her, and he said, Sweetheart, what are you cooking for dinner tonight? To which she turned around and said, For the fifth time, I said chicken! perspectives, we're tempted with either one of two things. Either we're tempted to think about the fact that we are always right, regardless of our shortcomings, of our blindness, or our deafness. Or, as our culture would have us to believe today, we might be tempted to think, well, because there are so many perspectives and all of you are really good people with really interesting experiences, then clearly all of our perspectives are of equal value. 
here's the problem. I'm incredibly limited in my perspective, and so are you. I'm limited by my sight. I'm limited by my ears. I'm limited by my experiences. I'm limited by my place in human history, something that I can't control. And yet it limits my perspective. But you know, there is one, and only one, who sees things perfectly, who has absolutely no limitation on perspective. He only sees what is real, what is true, what is complete. And one of the amazing things to ponder about God is that there is absolutely no obstacles in the way to what he sees. Today we pick up in the series in the book of 1 Samuel, and we see one of these underlying themes that is coming back again and again and again, which is the contrast between what humans see and what God sees. And I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16 if you've yet to do so. Remember what is happening. King Saul, the first human king of Israel, has been in his kingship for some time and has continued in a pattern of disobedience to God. The Israelites were disobedient and asking for a king. That was like the rest of the nations. They got the king that they deserved. And King Saul has been regularly disobedient since then. And as a result, God has rejected this king. He's still on the throne, but he has no favor from the Lord. And so Israel is stuck with a king that will not be blessed by the Lord. And here you begin to see God work as he establishes a new king, and particularly along the lines of things that he and he alone is looking at. And so look at 1 Samuel 16 with me. We see at the end of chapter 15 that the prophet Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him for being the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send, to, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord says, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The chapter begins with a note of Samuel's distress. We read it just a moment ago. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? Now, I don't think that the grieving of Samuel was because God had made a mistake. Rather, I think that the grieving of Samuel was because he had the realization that Saul's ongoing sin against God had consequences beyond himself. When the king rebels, the kingdom suffers. And if God was rejecting Saul as the king, this could very well mean that God was rejecting Israel as his people. And this caused him great grief and consternation. I mean, after all, the people of God saw great potential in this young king. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted a king to lead them, to fight their battles for them. Saul was, was strong and handsome and tall. He looked the part. 
Great things were clearly ahead. But now all of that hope of potential was gone. All of it was gone. And Samuel now grieves. I wonder if you ever grieve over spiritual things like that. Do you ever mourn or have distress when you see rebellion against God or failure or when you understand the consequences of someone's choices? These past couple of years, we've seen a large number of very high-profile pastors in America who have fallen, who have engaged in ongoing sin and been disqualified from ministry. Men that have written good books, who have preached great sermons, who have influenced thousands of people, people you might have seen on TV or read one of their books or been to an evangelistic crusade to hear. Sexual issues, alcoholism, financial impropriety, leadership abuses, and on down the line. And some of us are maybe a bit cynical toward the idea of celebrity in Christian culture. And so we might see that happening and say, Aha! I knew it! I knew that he wasn't all that he was presented to be. It's a gotcha sort of moment. But in actuality, many of us grieve. We grieve at the fall of gifted leaders. And even more than that, we grieve at the effect that their ongoing sin had on the thousands of people that they ministered to. Do you ever mourn about the fact that so many people around you don't know the Lord? <laughs> Do you ever grieve that so many Christians remain willfully ignorant to what God would have us to do because he presents it in his word, or that we've become, many of us, just accustomed to spiritual apathy and are okay to get by without ongoing growth. You see, Samuel's spiritual distress that sets up everything that's about to happen here, his grief is admirable in many ways because it shows that he cares about the most important things. And he cares about the most important one. Samuel realizes what I hope we're all growing to realize, and that is this. What God sees and what God is going to do next will affect them completely. And he knows that often rebellion leads to judgment. And so... The drama thickens. God tells Samuel to stop grieving in so many words and to get up because he's going to go anoint a new king. And immediately Samuel says, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'll be killed if I do that. That's what happens in the ancient world when kings threaten people or have people who are threatening their throne. Those people are killed. <laughs> and so God says, well, you will go. And Samuel does what Saul didn't do. He obeyed. He goes to the town of Bethlehem with a heifer. And as the people see him, they tremble entering the village. And they ask why he's there. And he says to offer sacrifice. And you can almost feel the tension of what happens next. Samuel calls upon Jesse in his house. 
And Jesse brings his sons to the sacrifice after they're consecrated, and it's almost a picture of a parade that happens before him. They enter the area that the sacrifice is going to occur, and Samuel looks upon the oldest son, Eliab, and he says, verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab, the eldest, the heir of Jesse, the one of tall stature, he was the captain of the Bethlehem football team. He was the leader of his brothers. He is the one who has been accepted to the Israeli military academy at West Gaza. From what the prophet saw of this strapping young man, he said, surely this one is a lock to be the king. But then we see verse 7. If you have a pencil in your Bible nearby, underline, circle, star, this verse. This is the hinge verse of this particular text, but perhaps the hinge verse of the entire book of 1 Samuel. The Lord sees what Samuel is doing. He knows his heart and his mind, and he says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel was taken aback. His eyes had deceived him. He wasn't seeing clearly. In fact, he had fallen into the trap that many before him had fallen into. I mean, what, was the last, what happened the last time the people chose a king based on the fact that he was tall of stature and handsome and looked the part very clearly? Well, that led them to a king named Saul, who the Lord had now rejected. Stunned that his eyes had deceived him, Samuel had the other sons come forward, and they parade past and like fashion. Abinadab, neither has the Lord chosen him. Shammah, neither has the Lord chosen him. Seven of the sons of, of Jesse come by, neither has the Lord chosen him. Nope, nope, nope. The Lord has chosen none of them. Until the prophet asks Jesse, is this all of your children? And the answer comes back. Yeah, I mean, there is young David, but he's keeping the sheep, i.e., let's not waste anybody's time to go fetch him. He's clearly not the choice. He's the youngest, which means basically he's our servant. He certainly smells right now, and on top of that, he's a redhead. Nobody wants a redhead to be their king. And the prophet says, bring him. We will not sit down until he comes. And upon seeing him, the Lord prompts the prophet. And verse 12 says, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. David was to become the king someday, not immediately, but someday, specifically because God deemed it to be so. David was going to become the king only because God said he is the one. 
And what you see here is yet another of the dozens of examples in the Bible of God using the unexpected people to be some of his greatest servants. I mean, God is no respecter of the status of men and women. He doesn't care about the reputation of your family in this community. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care how many awards you've won. He doesn't care what kind of car you drive. And he certainly doesn't care about the career status that you've achieved when it comes to his kingdom. The people that we think should be the powerhouse Christian servants of God because of their stature in this life, are often passed over for someone who's completely unexpected. Why? Because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. (laughs) But the Lord looks on the heart. And so let me ask you, What is the state of your heart? In a moment of self-reflection, a moment of analysis, what is the state of your heart before the Lord? The Bible is bursting with references about the heart. The heart is a description of the authentic person, the real you. The heart is the place of our desires of our affections, of the will, of spiritual, decisive activity. The heart is a center of a person in biblical terms. We see in Proverbs that the heart reflects who we really are. (laughs) And that if your heart is in good shape, then it's life-giving to you. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of a man reflects the man. (laughs) Or Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow springs of life. Guys, so many of us have become adept to functioning, to going through life, coasting our way through the world of external appearances or conformity to a certain set of social standards, but you need to know that those things might get you by in your career. They might get you by in your friendships. They might get you by in most of your family relationships, but God is looking at your heart. First Peter warns us against drawing attention to yourself based on those external things, external beauty, rather than the heart. It says in 1 Peter 3, do not let your adornings be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, very precious. And of course, we see Jesus talk about how the love of our heart or the affections of our heart or the desires of our heart are an indication of our spiritual life. And so he commands very clearly, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. God is looking at our hearts. What do you really desire in life? Do you desire him and even more of him? Or do you desire more comfort? 
more notoriety, more material possession. God is looking at our hearts. Do your affections point to him? Or do they look in another direction? Now some of us will say, and try to justify the difference between our heart and our behavior, we'll say, well, I know, I know that I'm doing all these things right now in my life that don't exactly reflect the way that God would have me to live, but it's okay because God knows my heart. He knows that I'm generally a good person, that I want like, pretty good things, even though the pattern of my life isn't exactly exhibiting that right now. But then we re- look at the words of Jesus in Luke 6.45 that says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. (laughs) But the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so, what you do speaks to the nature of your heart. What you do comes from your heart. (laughs) What you say comes from your heart. And so what does the pattern of your heart, or the pattern of your life, reveal about that heart? Because one of the things that we see about the pattern of King Saul's life is that King Saul's life was a life that was characterized by self-determination. Saul was going to do things his way, in his time, in his manner, and as a result it revealed something about his heart. His heart was not one in which was submissive to God. And God rejected him. What does the pattern of your life reveal about your heart? For some of us, this is welcome news. Maybe you're insecure about the external appearance that you have or about the status of your family or you struggle with the lack of wealth Or maybe you don't have the personality traits that are so often lauded in our society today during this particular time in history. But you need to know that God is looking at your heart. He sees past all the external right to the heart. And he chose David. And it was in relation to his heart. We saw just a couple chapters earlier in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel that upon rejecting Saul... God made this very clear claim. He said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And David would be the one who would ultimately, even though many ups and downs, even significant failures, adultery, murder, he would still be the one who would say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God sees past the external, and he looks all the way into the heart. And as you step back and as you look at this situation, you can't help but recognize that at this hinge point in the book, that this is an element of God's provision. It's an element of God's provision for the people of Israel. It's an element of God's provision for us today, and it's an element of God's provision even for King David in the moment. Because you see right there in verse 1 that it says that, calls Samuel to get up, to go and to anoint a king, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
I have provided for myself a king. Now this is in great contrast to what the people of Israel had been saying otherwise. They had said, God, appoint for us a king. And so God makes for them a king, it says. And in chapter 12, Saul is referred to as, as the king who you have chosen, who you have asked for, your king. But here, God is making for himself a king. Based on what he sees, based on what he desires, God is the one who's providing. And we lose it a little bit in our English translation, but the idea of God's provision is just peppered throughout this passage. There's a root word in the Hebrew there that it has, takes a number of different forms. It says that God provides, that God sees, that God saw, that God looks. All of those have the same root word of God's provision. It's a really cool little wordplay that's going on there to emphasize this one point. God is providing for his people through this king. He's also providing for King David himself. He's providing for King David because God is the one who gave him that heart. <laughs> Perhaps you were a little bit discouraged a couple minutes ago when you looked at your heart and you said, wow, like, in a, if I'm really honest about the desires of my heart, about my affections, my temptations, my will, I don't love God as much as I should. I'm distracted by material possessions more than I want to be. In fact, if I consider the state of my heart, it looks like I have a pretty significant disease. David had that disease too. But God gave him a new heart. And in fact, Jeremiah 17 tells us that all people have that type of disease. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so God saves Israel by giving them a king who has a new heart. He is the king who is from the town of Bethlehem, who would be prophesied from for some time, who would provide the line for the eternal king, the King Jesus. And this King Jesus is the king who gives new hearts to all of us who need it. God provides the heart that he desires to see in you. That's the great news. God, he sees past the external and he looks all the way into your heart and he sees it as it truly and really is. Gives an offer to replace it. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 36. The prophet prophesies, the word of the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. David is the kingly line in which Jesus would come from. And Jesus comes so that you can have a new heart. <laughs> and so when God looks upon you and he looks past the external into your heart, he looks right at it. He, he sees something that he loves. And this is a glorious aspect of the gospel of grace that is applied to you, that when you put your trust in Jesus as your savior, he forgives you your sins, but the cleansing that occurs is he gives you a new heart. <laughs> He takes out the dead one, the stone one, and he gives you a fleshly one. He takes out the black one, and he gives you a pure one. 
And like David had the Spirit of God rush upon him, it says in verse 13, for all of his days, for that day forward, so too when you get a new heart, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you for all of your days forward. Some of us are here today, and perhaps we've been on the fringe of our relationship with God, but we're not sure what the next step forward is like. But we know that something's going on in the heart that's not quite right. The next step for you is to make a commitment of faith to Jesus to forgive you your sins. Because the bad news is this. Your heart is incredibly diseased, and it needs a transplant. But the good news is that there's one available. And God gives it so generously. I love the way that Ray Orland puts it. He says that you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a white, uh, we have a boardroom in every heart. Now imagine a boardroom with me. It's a big, long table, leather chairs, coffee cups, bottles of water, whiteboard in the background. And there's a committee that's sitting at that table. There's the social self. The private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, and the religious self, and probably some other selves, all at the table of your heart. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, and each person is trying to gain their sway, constantly agitated and upset. They can rarely come to a decision unanimously, a wholehearted decision And we tell ourselves that we're this way because life is really complicated. Because we're so busy and we're made up of multiple facets and and that's just the reality we have to live with. But the truth is, is that we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. Now the kind of person that puts their faith in Jesus could trust Jesus in one of two ways. You could invite him onto the committee and give him a seat at the table. But then he's one voice of many. And the more voices you add around that table, the more complicated things become. The other way to trust Jesus, and really the only true way to trust Jesus, is to say to him, my life isn't working. (laughs) The fights of the boardroom of my heart are leading to greater disease. And as a result, I'm asking you to come in and to fire the committee, (laughs) to take over the boardroom completely. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. I give you all of my heart. Trusting Jesus isn't just adding Jesus. It's also subtracting the other idols of the heart. And so if you're here today and you haven't trusted him yet, I would so strongly encourage you, wait no longer. Today can be the day of a heart transplant because God gives so generously. And as we see in Proverbs and other passages, life-giving in its nature Some of us are here today and you're saying, well, I put my faith in Jesus a long time ago and I have a heart for the Lord, but my heart is straying, it's wandering, my heart needs a bit of a tune-up. 
1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discuss what happened in another nautical tragedy. You see, in January of that year, off the coast of Virginia on a foggy day, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel, the Nantucket, which eventually sank. And 41 sailors lost their lives in the cold Atlantic Ocean on that day. And while it was Osmond Berry, the captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, in the course of the trial, the other captain, Captain Edward Johnson, was grilled on the stand for over five hours. And during the cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the steamship Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said that the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastline trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he had been the master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. And this realization partly explains the heart-rending picture of the New York Times shortly after the trial. It says the two captains met, they clasped hands, and then they sobbed into each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are the, removing, are the moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. The reminder for us is this. If the heart is like a compass, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed by God, relying and clinging to the Lord Jesus, who only, who him and him alone is the only one who gives us a clean and true and new heart, and who points us to our true magnetic north. Because God sees past the external, and he looks right at your heart. Friends, I hope you care more about the state of your heart than you do about the state of your career. I hope you care more about the state of your heart before God than you do about the state of your home. <laughs> I hope you care more about the state of your heart before God than you do about the many, many external things that we so often are focused on. Because God looks past all of that, and he looks right at your heart, and he provides a way for it to be pure and clean and true. Will you pray with me? And if you are here today, and today you want a true heart transplant, then put your faith in Christ, I implore you. If you're here today and you want a heart tune-up from God, Let's pray and ask him for that very thing. God does this as we cling to him in the gospel, as we read his word, as we continue to serve him. He's so generous in this way. And so we pray, Father God, help us. Help us with the disease that we have in our hearts. We thank you for providing a clean heart through the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that King David ascended to the throne because of your choice and that through him would be the line of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray now 
that you would continue to tune our hearts to you, that we may know you and love you and serve you and have ongoing true life. In Jesus' name we pray.